We are on uh, week uh, three of our series called Seven Signs. If you've got your music turned up, I don't know how you can't be pumped right now. <laughs> that song is maybe a little too much, but uh, it's, it's fun. We're looking at the seven miracles in the Gospel of John, seven miracles. And we're asking ourselves, what makes these miracles signs? Um, what makes them more than just something that's miraculous? What makes them something that points us to, reveals who Jesus is? Uh, so what, week one, we looked at the miracle of the uh, wine, water being turned into wine. And we asked ourselves, what does that mean? And we kind of developed and we, we kind of realized that this is a picture of God's kingdom. This is a picture of how God wants God's abundance uh, to flow through the land, but, but not just to me individually, not for me to hoard, but for it to be available to all people. Week two, we saw a story of a royal official, someone in the royal court, a, a king-like figure who humbled himself enough to go and ask Jesus for help. It's a picture of how even the most powerful people in the world uh, still can't control everything, and they need help. And, and there's room in God's kingdom for them and for anyone who's willing to lay aside their ego and kneel before Jesus and humble themselves before Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the, uh, as, the, as it says in a couple places in Scripture, the king of kings, the royal official submitting to Jesus, thus displaying Jesus' proper place in history, the King of Kings. Today we're going to look at a healing of a paralyzed man at the Bethesda pool. Now, uh, we're going to get into this, but I just have to tell you real quickly, um, I'm, a, I'm mildly dyslexic, never, never diagnosed that way, but me and Bethesda pool, I've been practicing for the last three days to say right, because for the longest time I kept calling it um, Bethesda, Bethesda, I don't know. I kept saying it wrong. Now I'm not even sure how I was saying it wrong, and I think I'm saying it right, but it's Bethesda uh, Pool, and that's not how it looks to me, but uh, you try saying that and uh, see if it's hard. But um, we want to know, as we look at this miracle at the Bethesda Pool, uh, we want to know, what is this miracle pointing towards, and what does it say about who Jesus is? Now, this story in the Gospel of John is really two stories. Um, it's what the commentators call a miracle story, and a conflict story. And you see these in the Gospel of John and other Gospels. Miracle stories, of course, are a, a typical type of story around a miracle. There's a certain elements you expect to see in a miracle story, including a miracle, but other things. A conflict story, there's many of these in the Gospel where Jesus specifically is in conflict with someone else. There's an argument, there's a debate, there's a conflict. So this story is kind of both. Um, um, Jesus heals somebody, that's the miracle story, and then because Jesus healed him on a Sabbath day, the religious rulers get upset and there's this additional story around conflict. Well, I just, want, I just say that because um, I, I want us all to be biblical scholars and to really kind of dig into scripture in an intentional way, and uh, today we're just going to look at that miracle story, uh, but I wanted you to know that it's a part of a much bigger story where there's a conflict, where there's a disagreement, a debate around what's appropriate on the Sabbath. We don't have time to dig in that today, but I wanted you to know that it's there. So with that, let's look at John chapter 5, starting with verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. It'll also be on the screen. John 5, uh, starting with verse 1. Here's what it says. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which is Aramaic, in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here's a great number of, uh, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 
when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Let's pause there for a second. Let's think about what is happening here. There's this place in Jerusalem. We're given the setting. It's a spring. Um, it's, it's known for its magical powers. Uh, people could be healed in the spring. That's what it was known. Now, based on the context, it clearly wasn't a very effective uh, at healing people um, because it was, on the other hand, very effective of drawing people who wanted to be healed. There was a lot of people there. Now, if it was good at healing, it, there might not have been as many, um, or at least they wouldn't have been there as long as it seems they had. So it became a gathering place of sorts for disabled individuals, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, you can imagine all kinds of people would gather hoping for a chance to be made well. There's, there's actually springs like this all around the world that are considered sacred or holy or special. There's one I, I, I saw a documentary on, and I think... Uh, Spain. It's a Catholic uh, uh, place where people would go and touch the water because someone was healed at one point. This is, a, this is something that's still true today. People have these sacred places, but they go there uh, to be made, and since they aren't being made well, they, 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 the hope that they will be eventually be made well just keeps them coming back. And in this group of people was one guy who, who had been known for kind of being there the longest, you get the sense that the people kind of talked about it. It's like, oh, you know Charlie. You know Charlie. He's been here, coming here for years. He's been, he's been like this for 38 years. You, you get the idea. So let's step back and consider this. There's, there's going to be a miracle. And we're looking at miracles as signs. But before the miracle, we already have a sign. We have a picture um, that points us to who Jesus is. Jesus intentionally sought out the place where those most vulnerable gathered. Hold on to that for a second. Jesus intentionally sought out the place. Now, this is thousands of years ago, and it's still true. The most vulnerable in our society still gather together in different places and different neighborhoods. And Jesus said, I want to go there. So he, he intentionally sought out the place where most, where the most vulnerable gathered. And that place near the sheep gate, a gate used by shepherds down by this pool called Bethesda, a little out of the way, not a place people went to. So don't gloss over that. Jesus wasn't at this gathering by accident. He didn't stumble onto it. It's reasonable to guess that some people even avoided this area. And not only that, Jesus sought out the person who had been there the longest or who was known for being this way the longest. So here's the first thing we learned about Jesus. Jesus went to the most marginalized and hurting, and he sought out the one who had been hurting the longest, 38 years. Now, this is great news for anyone who thinks they're too far gone, or thinks they've been this way for too long, or nothing's ever going to change. For 38 years, he'd been this way. I'll be uh, 37 this year, I think. I'm so terrible at remembering my name. It changes every year, so it's hard to remember. But I think it'll be 37 this year, right around there. Uh, so this number feels particularly compelling to me. If, if, there, if there was something that I struggled with my entire life for, you know, 38 years or so, i got to be honest, I, got, I think right around this age, right, right around the 40-year mark, something happens in us, and correct me if I'm wrong and it's just me, when you think, you know, it's, just, it's not going to change. It's been this way my entire life. 38 years? It's not going to change. This is just who I am. I'm not, it's never going to be any different. I mean, in your 20s and 30s, if we've got some young, young, young people listening, I feel like, uh, yeah, that's, oh, sorry, getting distracted. Yeah, inside story. I won't, I won't share here, but um, I mean, in your 20s and 30s, you're like, you know, you're holding out. Things can still kind of change. But 40, 
Whoever you are is just who you're going to be. I mean, right? Not with Jesus. This guy had been this way 38 years, but it wasn't until today that he met Jesus. And he wasn't too far gone. So Jesus asked this guy a question. It's the question. Do you want to get well? It almost appears like a rude question. Like, of course he wants to get well. He's been struggling for 38 years. But I don't think it's rude. I think it's actually really profound. Remember, Jesus is a, is a rabbi. They're allowed to ask these probing kinds of questions in the context of this. Not a random person. He's, he's, he's a religious teacher. He's a rabbi in this culture. He's actually asking a profound question. When you've been one way for so long, there, you don't even know if change is possible. You, don't, you, don't even, you might not even be sure you want to change. And I'm not talking about physical healing here. I'm talking about what it means to be made well. Jesus asked, do you want to get well? And the word here for well doesn't mean to be physically healed. It does in this context. It includes that. But it means more than that. It means to be made whole or complete or to be restored. Jesus is asking a bigger question that applies to all of us. Do you want to be made well? I don't care how old you are or how long you've lived with something or how, much is of it, how big of a struggle it is for you. The question is, do you want to be made well? I love this guy's response because it's exactly how many of us respond, me included. He says in verse 7, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. You see, for this guy, he can only imagine... One way of, of being made well. For him, he needs to get into the pool when the water is stirred. The idea here is that the, when the water moved, it was believed that spirits were stirring up the water. Um, so basically just imagine Zelda, a Zelda-like game. There's a fairy in the fountain that makes the water life-giving power. That, I mean, it sounds silly, but that's kind of like, that's, it, it sounds silly to us, but it's, it didn't sound silly to the ancient world. So year after year, this guy has been coming to this magic water, hoping that he could get into the pool before it runs out, the power runs out, and he could be healed. And this guy says, I can't get to the pool for two reasons. One, no one will help me. And two, other people beat me to it. Here's why I love this response. You see, he spends his time talking about how he won't get made well because people won't help him and other people will beat him to it. For him, the blame sits with other people. And this is a typical response to feeling stuck. He's like, I can't get anyone to carry me to the pool and even if I did, someone else is going to get to the pool first. You know, and it loses its power. So he's so focused on how other people are making it impossible for him to get well. And it's, if he's anything like any of us, how much do you think uh, he just kind of stews on that? You know, just kind of sits with it, lets it ruminate, really kind of lets that sit and define him. And he, and he probably uses it to justify his entire life and status in life. I am this way and I will always be this way because no one will help me get to the pool. And even if they did, someone else is going to beat me to what's possible. But here's his real problem. He's overlooked the bigger issue. He's got an assumption at play, and this is true for all of us, that he glosses right over. And we, we all do this. We put our attention on what we think is the problem. 
when all along there's an assumption that we made that's our real problem. What's his assumption? He's assuming that the pool is capable of healing him. That's his first assumption. I mean, he doesn't even question it. But isn't that what we do? I mean, this happens all the time in so many ways. Think about it like this. Someone might say to me, you know, Joe, um, I can't get a job because I can't afford to go to college. And, and I, the college or the college I want to go to where my friends are or where, where my parents went to is very expensive. Or I, I'm in college already and I just need to finish it before I can really start my life. And someone will talk about this sort of thing. And I'll say, here's the thing. You're assuming you have to go to college. Where did that assumption come from? Or you're assuming you have to go to an expensive college, or you're assuming that your life starts after college. Or someone might say, I, I, I've heard this many, in many different ways, I can't be a Christian because I believe in science. And I'll say, whoa, you're assuming Christians don't believe in science. I, I have no idea how they would come up with that assumption, but you're, you're assuming that science eliminates mystery and and the need for faith. You're, you're, you're making a lot of assumptions. Or someone might say, I can't be a Christian because I don't want to hate people like other Christians do. I've heard vari- variations of this. And, and I'm just like, you're assuming Christians are supposed to hate people. We're not. Some, someone might say, well, I can't get married because we can't afford the wedding we want yet. And I'll say, you assume you need an expensive wedding or an expensive ring. Where, where did that assumption, expectation come from? These are all just micro examples. I'm not saying any of these things are wrong, but where, where did that assumption, you're, you're glossing over this base assumption. You're, you're assuming that it's about having it all figured out instead of having someone to figure it out with. Or someone might say, I, I can't have kids yet because I can't afford it. And I'll say, yeah, you're probably right on that one, actually. They're super expensive. I think you get what I'm saying. He's locked into an assumption. He assumes that the pool will heal him. And so because he hasn't been healed yet means that there must be all these other reasons for it. And -and so-and-so won't carry me, and -and so-and-so beats me to the water. And these are all of the excuses and distractions that he fills his days with. And and that's what it looks like to get stuck. When you feel stuck in life, this might be one of the reasons. We've made the wrong assumptions about what is going to fix us. And we fixate on those assumptions. There's no reason why it won't be our healing. When we get stuck in life, it's often because we have fixated on the wrong solution to our problems. When we, I'm going to say it again for those who weren't listening. When we get stuck in life, it's often because we have fixated. We can't imagine anything different on the wrong solution to our problems. In fact, I'm going to take it one step further. In the end, Jesus healed this guy. But because Jesus healed him, sometimes Christians now treat Jesus like he's that magical pool. Because Jesus' healings, um, because of Jesus' healings, Christians now fixate on being healed. But I want you to remember, you know, that there were a lot of other people Jesus didn't heal. Um, And I want you to remember that by definition, miracles are the exception to the rule. Miracles are, that's what makes them a miracle. They're the anomaly. They aren't what normally happens. So, but sometimes people treat Jesus like he's some kind of Bethesda pool or supernatural vending machine. And we can fixate on the healing when we're meant to fixate on Jesus. Because being healed isn't the same as being made whole. 
later Jesus heals this guy. He finds him and he tells him this. He says in John chapter 5, verse 14, if you skip ahead, he says, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, this guy's walking around at this point. He says, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, at first glance, once again, this can seem harsh. I don't think it is. Um, We know from the full witness of scripture that Jesus wasn't saying that if he sinned, he might become paralyzed again or that he was paralyzed because he had sinned. That's, we just know that from the rest of Scripture. No, what we see here is that Jesus is saying that there are worse things than being paralyzed. And I know that I'm saying that from a place of extreme privilege. So let me be very clear. Anyone, regardless of being disabled or differently abled, they are already whole, complete people already, no matter what their life or body looks like. Amen? Being healed is not the same as being whole or being made whole. It's nice when you can have both, but they aren't necessarily the same. When Jesus tells him to stop sinning, he's referring to the only thing we know about this guy. He would go to the pool and wait for the water to stir and hope for one day that he could get in. Now remember, to sin in the Greek means to miss the mark. It's, it's archery. You, you aim for a bullseye, you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to aim. And you shoot, and sometimes you miss because you, you tried, and sometimes we sin. Even though we were trying to do the right thing, we still sin, and we miss. But sometimes we miss because we, because we are aiming at the wrong place. The bullseye is over here, and we've been fixated on this. We thought that was the bullseye. That's what we should go after. In reality, it's over here. Jesus is saying to this guy, stop looking in the wrong places for wholeness. Stop fixating on the, on the wrong solutions and instead let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2. Fixating on healing isn't the same as fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's, that's really the difference between this being a miracle and a sign. A miracle draws attention to itself. A sign points us to what it's really about. I recently watched this movie. Uh, it's called Sound of Metal. It's about a young guy who plays drums in a metal band. It's on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's, it's pretty good. Um, early in the film, he starts to lose his hearing. And he, of course, he's a, he's a musician by trade. Um, that's how he makes his livelihood. It's his whole life. It's his whole culture. So he, he's freaking out, and his hearing just is quickly deteriorating. Now, it just so happens that he's also a recovering addict, which means this huge transition, this trauma of going deaf unexpectedly, um, his sponsor in, in recovery journey and his girlfriend are afraid that he's going to start using again, which would be understandable. After, like, you're freaking out. So... Um, he was dead set, though, on surgery, on finding tricks to heal his hearing. He, he, he wanted to get back to normal, and he was set on that. He was so fixated on those other remedies that, that he wasn't really willing to work, uh, to do the work to learn how to be deaf, to learn sign. Uh, he was, just wanted to be healed. So, um, but because of his need for recovery, they take him to a home that's part of a larger deaf community and, um, where he can uh, experience the 12 steps or recovery work in the context of other people who happen to be deaf as well and where he can also learn how to live like this. Well, during his intake interview with the director of this recovery center, he asked him, he says, are you going to help me learn how to hear again? And the director looks at him and says, we're looking for a solution to this. Not this. He was going to lose his hearing, but that didn't mean he couldn't be made well. But only if he stopped fixating on the wrong solution. 
Consider the guy at the pool. His solution to his problem was never going to be that pool of water. And sitting at a pool, hoping one day to be cured, was not getting him any closer to being made whole, let alone healed. So I ask you, what is your Bethesda pool? What is that thing in your life, the solution that you're fixated on, that you just won't let go of, that is keeping you from changing and from growing? The guy had his sights set on the pool. He stared at it day and day, hoping that he would catch it. He, he stared so long that he couldn't see any other solution. It was his salvation. He needed it. He would never get there quick enough, but he went anyway, hoping and praying, looking and looking at this water, hoping it would get his, be a solution. For this guy, the water was his sign. It was, what pointed to, it was the point to his salvation. But Jesus steps in front of him, breaking his view of the water, breaking that gaze. I wonder if the guy like stretches, like, hold on, Jesus, like, get out of the way. I gotta, like, it might, it might stir at any moment. Move out of the way, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't budge. And he asks him, do you want to be made well? And the guy's like, you know, stretching his neck. He's like, well, like, I don't have, you gonna, are you going to help me get to the pool? And I don't have anyone to help me get to the pool. And if I do, it's usually too late. And Jesus looks at him and says, next verse, verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. I want you to imagine your own pool of water. What's the thing keeping, uh, that you keep holding on to, that you keep thinking is going to fix your problems, the thing that you keep placing your hope in? I want you to picture it. What is it? Do you have your eyes fixate on it? Now, imagine that Jesus steps in front of it, blocking your view, and you have to, where'd you come from? Adjust your eyes. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the healing that we need. He's the giver of life, especially when we're broken. But Jesus is also the way. Jesus can show, show up and point us in the right direction. We've been aiming for the, the wrong things, and he can help us aim for the right, and he can turn our gaze in the direction of our lives. But Jesus is also the truth. Jesus breaks through all of our assumptions and opinions and tells us what we need to hear, the hard truth and the hard reality. So whether it's a new direction or new life or healing or a hard truth, Jesus is the answer. And so he looks at you, blocking your view of the thing that you've had your eyes fixated on, that goal in life that you feels unattainable that was going to define you. He blocks your view. He asks you, do you want to be made well? And you can come up with a thousand excuses why it's never going to work out. And then he's going to say to you, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. It's time to move on. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks for the ways in which you work in our lives. Lord, come and challenge our assumptions. Those things that we allow too easily to define us. Speak to us. Help us to know you. And we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to spend a few moments in
sharing in communion. So uh, I didn't get, I, I posted this in a couple places, but if you didn't know, I encourage you to go grab something. Uh, you have time to, um, if you want to grab some bread or juice or wine or whatever the case may be for you. I do want to let you know that we're going to, um, uh, we do this every once in a while. We're going to actually walk through some liturgy. So there'll be some words on the screen. You can put those up now. Um, you can kind of see where the bold is. Um, you're welcome to read those aloud wherever you are, if you feel comfortable, or at least read them in your heart. Uh, I know if you're in an empty room, saying something out loud is mildly awkward, uh, so no judgment here. But I encourage you to, to read these, uh, either out loud or in your heart, as we walk through this. This uh, liturgy is meant to prepare us to receive uh, Christ's body and blood. And these words are meant to wash over us and to kind of heal those parts in our lives that feel broken. Um, so I invite you to do that. Um, the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity, made covenant to be our sovereign God, and spoke to us through the prophets. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, uh, we raise your, uh, praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord. God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. Your spirit anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce that the time had come when you would save your people. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, and ate with sinners. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made up with us a new covenant by the water and the Spirit. When the Lord Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of your word and the Holy Spirit. Now on the night in which he gave himself up, he took bread and gave thanks to you and broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks to you and, and gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out to you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and uh, wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. May your spirit make us one with Christ, 
one with each other and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. And we feast at his heavenly blank, but banquet through your son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. We partake of the one loaf. The bread which we break is the sharing in the body of Christ. The cup over which we give thanks is the sharing in the blood of Christ. So friends, the body of Christ given to you. The blood of Christ given to you. Thanks be to God.